Welcome to the Oak Grove Podcast. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We're tackling Matthew chapter 3 over two Sundays, as the Lord wills. So we're going to take a look at the first 12 verses today, and then we're going to pick up uh, in our next Matthew sermon on the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we encounter, we, we meet here in this first message of Matthew 3 with this enigmatic figure, the, the incandescent man, as Leonard Ravenhill used to love to call him. He's known by many of you as John the Baptist. We're going to read about him, and Matthew gives us a bit of a summary of John the Baptist's life and ministry and purpose, and then we're going to discover what God would speak to us about this man's life and how then we ought also to live. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones." And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit, good fruit I should say, is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire His winnowing fork, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. May God bless this reading to our own precious hearts and our lives. The ministry of John the Baptist. Every single gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, brings John the Baptist to bear before we encounter the ministry and the story of Jesus Christ. Every gospel author wants us to go through the ministry of John the Baptist before we even ask the readers are prepared to encounter Messiah in his full-blown mission and ministry. John the Baptist is not some some fly-by-night surprise arrival. He'd been prophesied. As we just read in Matthew 3, there was a prophecy from Isaiah, which we will visit a little later on. And even Malachi, which we've spent a lot of time speaking about Malachi of late, because Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it was given to prepare Israel for the arrival of God, the arrival of the Son of God, the arrival of their Messiah. These are the words of Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. 
And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. We don't often think about that motif in the arrival of Jesus Christ at the specific God-ordained time when he ought to arrive. The Bible says in the volume of the book, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. We should reflect on this, that according to the prophet, If God had not sent Christ forth at that specific time to perform that specific ministry, God would have consumed the earth in a deluge like he had did in Noah's day. But this time, not a deluge of water, but a deluge of liquid fire. That's the great and dreadful day. And God, in an act of mercy, sent forth Christ. Before sending forth Christ, here comes the forerunner. Here comes the one who, who howls in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. John the Baptist, as suddenly as heaven fell silent, if you've been paying attention over our previous weeks in the Gospel of Matthew, we've already just discussed that from, from the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew, that, that distance between those two is approximately 400 years, nigh on half a millennia. As suddenly as the prophetic word was shut up and silenced is as suddenly as the thunder crack of John the Baptist was heard in the wilderness. And the masses of every social order, the masses couldn't help but go out to see. Common folk, Pharisees and scribes, Sadducees, soldiers, en masse, the people came to get a look at this John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? How do we, what do we know about him? How do we think of him? He, he was a 30-year-old, larger-than-life, bug-and-honey-eating, camel's hair, one-piece-wearing, shouting at the top of his lungs, repent, enigma. In other words, he didn't make a lot of sense. John the Baptist wasn't prone to go along to the local Christian bookstore and spend a lot of time down the aisle of how to win friends and influence people, how to grow a ministry, how to impress and and woo people to be attracted to you. John the Baptist had had a different way of doing things. The enigma of the prophet. The closest thing, the closest thing of this spectacle in history was the prophet Elijah. And John the Baptist is said to have come in the power, the calling, the ministry of Elijah, the anointing thereof. And this John the Baptist had a, had a gravitational pull unlike anything anyone had ever seen. And John is not unclear. He spells out so plainly for his hearers what is his ministry and why God has called him at this set time. Let me read for you John chapter 1 verses 6 to eight. These are the words of John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And in the words of John the Baptist himself, recorded in John 1 verse 29, these are the words of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist enjoyed no more than about six months of vocational ministry. It's a quick calling. It's a fast-paced ministry. He changed the entire face in that time. He changed the entire face of the nation. 
He had no seminary degree, no publicist, no publisher, no social media manager or campaigner, no church building, platform, pulpit, personal library, no stylist, no chef, nothing. It's clear he had no stylist or chef. He was a loner, stood isolated in a desert, and he called the nation to its knees in repentance, and they couldn't help themselves but heed the word of this prophet. F.B. Meyer wrote this, an author in the late 19th century, said this, We see the petty potentates of Palestine caused to tremble on their thrones at the word of this John the Baptist. John the Baptist has left a name and an influence that will never cease out of the world. Another feature arrests us, F.B. Meyer continues, another feature arrests us in the life of the ministry of this Baptist. He was ordained to be the clasp of two covenants. In him, Judaism reached its highest embodiment, and the Old Testament found its noblest exponent. It is significant, therefore, that through his lips, the law and the prophets should announce their transitional purpose, and that he who caught up the torch of the Hebrew prophecy was a grasp and spirit unrivaled by any before him. He clasped the testaments together. He is connective tissue. He's an Old Testament prophet, and Jesus will reference this when he says, all through the times of the law and prophets, up until John the Baptist, people through violence have tried to force themselves into the kingdom. And then Jesus elsewhere will say that there is none greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. John the Baptist is connective tissue between the way of the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, the prophets, and the soon coming Messiah, the kingdom of God and heaven in Christ. Before we go any further and look at John the Baptist and his ministry and his teaching, we have a lesson to learn at this point. We can see here what God can do with a surrendered person whose agenda, whose goal, whose ambition is nothing other than to point to Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, who believes with every fiber of his being that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. Not a t-shirt, not a tattoo, not a well-worded tweet. This was John the Baptist's life. He believed this. Not a slogan to paint over his otherwise self-intoxicated existence, which is so true of many of modern evangelicals today. It's all about Jesus while they point the spotlight on themselves. John the Baptist was not like that. In any way. John the Baptist isn't talking in riddles or mysteries. He's plainly saying that there is someone coming after him who makes him look less than even a slave peasant who can't untie those sandals. You know, it was said in this day and age in Israel, it was actually, it was actually known around the Roman Empire as. Many Jews were tragically enslaved by their Roman overlords and the tyranny of the empire. It was often said that a Jewish slave, though honest, though helpful, the Romans would say this, the, the Gentiles would say this, a Jewish slave would rather die than lower themselves to touch feet. 
The Romans understood this when they, when they went to the marketplace to barter and buy slaves, which was the ancient world. That's the world Jesus was born and lived in. They knew that when they, would, when they would get a Hebrew slave, that's what they would expect. And here is John the Baptist saying, this Messiah, this King, this Jesus is so much greater than I. I couldn't even be called his peasant bending down to, to unlace his sandals. The coming of Messiah was no secret. This bellowing voice in the wilderness And the scripture tells us that John the Baptist's ministry emptied entire towns and cities and villages. If you go back to your text and you read it, compare it with other gospel accounts, you will read that John the Baptist's ministry was so magnetic that they all came from the towns and the villages and the cities nearby. In the thousands, in the hundreds of thousands. Historians will say this was the greatest revival that Israel had known up until this time. One and all, from every tier of society, they came to confess their sins. John the Baptist continually points to Jesus. Points to Jesus. I can't help, I don't know about you, but feel in that is a profound indictment against the platforms of celebrities in Christendom today. John should have signed the book deal. John should have set up his his ministry and got himself ready for life. John should have booked himself out. John should have got a a publicist and and someone to take care of, of, of his media ministry. John should have become a big deal. And all he can do is point with his finger and say, there is the lamb. Follow him. What am I? Less than a peasant servant. What am I? Less than a slave. My ministry is to do this one thing. It is to become less so that Jesus can become more. What God can do with a surrendered person. The coming of Messiah was not secret. As we've, as we've worked our way through Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 and now the first part of chapter 3, we come to this conviction, this realization That if there's anything that Israel should have known and been ready for, it was the coming of Messiah. Here is the prophet and the spirit, the anointing, the power of Elijah in the wilderness saying, I am not here to proclaim me, I'm here to proclaim the one coming after me. None of this is secret, none of this is a mystery. I want to I force this point home so that all of us, every time we're reading our New Testament, particularly the Gospels, I, I, I want us to come to those parts in our Gospels where the people are coming to Jesus saying, who are you? And I want us to feel a frustration by that. That's what I want. I don't want you to come to those parts of your gospel where people are confused about Jesus. People don't know who Jesus is. People are accusing him of being something other than what he is. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 16, who do they say I am? Well, they say you might be Elijah or, or Isaiah or, or one of the prophets. Or some, have, some have begun saying you're John the Baptist's return from the dead. Don't you, don't you find that stirring and compelling that the people of Israel were ready and willing to believe that John the Baptist rose from the dead, but not Jesus? He never even articulated that, and yet in Jesus' life and ministry, he presents himself in his glory, who he was, and they were blinded. I don't know about you, I, I, I grew up, um, evidently, grew up a little too much, but I did grow up, and as a kid, 
as a kid, we used to love, and I don't know if it's different growing up in Australia to, to, to those that grew up here in East Texas, but as a kid, Sunday morning, uh, let me restate that, Saturday morning was always quite unique because you'd get up uh, and your parents would you know, kind of sleep in and, and you'd turn on and watch cartoons. Anybody else ever have that experience? Okay, two, very good. The rest of you, I don't know what kind of childhood you had. I pity you. I'm sorry for all that went wrong. And we can arrange some counseling. Saturday morning cartoons was almost sacred in my household. And I remember there was always this cartoon. I wonder if you've ever seen it. It's called, ready? Waiting for this, Scooby-Doo. Okay. So what's funny is that more of you know about that than got up Saturday morning and watching cartoons but we know of Scooby-Doo. I did some research. It was first uh, written and, and put out in the 60s and the 70s. So here comes me in the 80s. And, and every single episode, you remember how it goes, right? Every episode, you remember how the, the, the plot unfolds in every episode? At the end of the episode, someone's mask is pulled off and you find out who the great villain is every single time. Okay, good. Two of you remember that. That's not what's happening in the gospel of Jesus. Just so we're clear. It's not, a, it's not a come to the end of Jesus' life, hanging on the cross, and suddenly it's like, hey, by the way, everybody, he was God incarnate. He was the Messiah, and look what you've gone and done. You've killed the guy. That's not what's happening. Four times, we've already read, in Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, and now in chapter 3, this happened so that it might be fulfilled. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, numbering in the hundreds, specifically detail Jesus, where he was born, who he would be born to, under what time and what era. His family would go to Egypt. They would come up out of Egypt. They would return to Galilee and then to Nazareth. And now the prophecies of John the Baptist. You have a prophet in the wilderness literally screaming, repent because that's the lamb. He is God in flesh. Now, the reason why I'm stressing this is you cannot read your Gospels and think that the blindness of these people of Israel around Jesus, that they are non-culpable for it. They're just sadly ignorant. I mean, they, they just didn't know. We, we feel a pity. Four times we've read, this was done, then it might be fulfilled. Hundreds of direct quotations from the Old Testament leave the reader wondering, how could these people of the day of Jesus be so blinded by the arrival of their Lord and King? Chapter 3 offers no defense for them. More Old Testament texts fulfilled. Malachi, Isaiah. Here comes John the Baptist. Here comes the forerunner. And is he mincing words? No. Is he speaking in mysteries and enigmas? No. The unbelievers of Jesus' day, just like unbelievers of this day, just like here in this place right now this morning, if you remain in your sins and in your unbelief, you are culpable for that disbelief. That is sin. This is a disbelief not born out of ignorance. I didn't have enough information. I didn't, I didn't fully get the whole picture. This unbelief is from hard-heartedness and a love of sin. That's why Matthew is laboring this point. You, you ask the question, why so often in Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, it'll continue throughout the entire book of Matthew, does he keep saying this was, this was done, that it might be fulfilled, and then a direct reference to the Old Testament so that you know God is not trying to play tricks. This is not a Scooby-Doo episode where you can never quite sleuth who the villain is. It's always Jesus announcing his lordship. So what's a forerunner? Malachi chapter 3. Another Old Testament reference that we haven't yet visited. We'll take a look at this. 
Malachi chapter 3 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I will, pre- I will send my messenger who will prepare the way. And Isaiah 40, verse 3, 4, and 5, which we've already referenced, and Matthew directly quotes in Matthew chapter 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Verse 4, every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall, shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Forerunner. I'm sure you're familiar with that phrase, that term. We need to have a sense of understanding of really how is John's ministry, John the Baptist, related to the culture and the times of Jesus. In the ancient world, it was common for a king, a ruler, an emperor, to send before him a forerunner who would be responsible for preparing his way. And this happens in several ways. Number one, the forerunner would ready, clear, and repair roads for the king. Now, there were occasions where this forerunner would build an entirely new highway for the king, would often then be called the king's highway, or sometimes the king's road, prepared and built and set up by forerunners. The second thing is the forerunner would inform the subjects of the pending arrival of their king. The forerunner would herald the king's message and often declare whether the king's business was peace or not. Subjects would be held in desperate suspense to learn which of the business, peace or war, the king was on. Third thing, the forerunner would make sure every proper arrangement for the comfort and the efficiency of the king's visitation was made. These are the very things that are prophesied in the Old Testament that John the Baptist will do. He will prepare the way. He will bring mountains low, valleys high. He will take crooked paths and make them straight. Because here comes the King of all kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. He is the forerunner for the Messiah, the one that we meet in Scripture as our Savior King. Enter John the Baptist, the forerunner of all forerunners. A peerless prophet. That's why Jesus describes him. Of all born of woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. A peerless prophet. Spirit-filled since his mother's womb. And sensitive to the presence of in utero Jesus. This is stunning when we read this. In other gospel accounts, we read that when the young Mary, the virgin, pregnant with the Lord's Savior, God incarnate Jesus, encounters her her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, that John the Baptist rejoices and jumps inside Elizabeth's womb. Filled with the Spirit from birth. Sensitive to the presence of the Lord. He is, of course, as we know, the half-cousin of the Lord Jesus. He's an ascetic, a man acquainted with fasting, prayer, and sacrifice. He's fearless, bold, and declamatory voice. He emptied whole towns, villages, and cities of old Jerusalem and Judea. He was a fearer of no man apart from the Lord Jesus. He feared Jesus only, 
Pharisees, Sadducees, even the King Herod would stand to suffer his scathing rebuke. The recipient of Jesus' most optimistic assessment, John the Baptist. A baptizer readying the people for their king. Now this is scandalous. We don't always feel or get a sense of how scandalous this in fact is in the text. But those that understand the history of baptism are aware that baptism was a ceremony that the Jews would enforce upon Gentile proselytes, converts to Judaism. This this Jew-Gentile divide in the New Testament is so paramount to our understanding all of the goings-on in the New Testament. And part of this divide, Jew-Gentile, was that Jews had a constant conviction that the Gentiles were ceremonially and spiritually unclean. A Jew would never sit down at table and eat food with a Gentile. A Jew would never even enter the home of a Gentile. Never, under any circumstances. You remember the lengths that the Lord went to to get Peter in Acts chapter 10 to enter the house of Cornelius. That's a study for a different day. And yet, when, when Gentiles came and said, I, I want to convert to the religion of the Jews. I, I want to become one who practices Judaism. I, I recognize that the Lord God, the one true God, the Ancient of Days, Jehovah, is the God of the Jews. The Jewish people came up with this ceremony that, that these converts would have to come to a, a public watering space and they would have to baptize, fully immerse themselves in the water to symbolize them getting rid of their uncleanness, their filthy Gentile muck, dirt, and mess. The Jews wouldn't even, maybe, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, the Jews wouldn't even get in the water. If you were a Gentile convert to Judaism, you had to baptize yourself. That's a pretty rough set of circumstances. The water was considered that polluted by, by, by the Gentile person in the water that the Jews would stand back and say, all right, dunk yourself, down you go, come up, we'll call you ceremonially clean, and then you can become one of us. And so, this was a ceremony that greatly patronized the Gentiles. It was offensive. It was bothersome to say the least. And here comes the forerunner in the wilderness, screaming, crying, hollering, shouting his message, repent, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And these Jews come confessing their sins, and he says to them, in the water you go. This is scandalous to a degree that our thinking, our minds, our calculating could never truly understand. And they came in droves. And every time they came, confessed their sin, he would take them out into the water, dunk them, fully immerse them, showing that they have truly repented of their sins. This should have been the height of offense to the Jewish people, but they could not get enough of this John the Baptist. Here is his message. As we read it in Matthew chapter 3, and I will lean heavily in this portion upon the writings of one commentator, J.C. Ryle. If you've never read anything by J.C. Ryle, please pick up something that he wrote and read it. You'll be blessed and encouraged. But J.C. Ryle outlined five things that, that are part of John the Baptist's message. We're, we're going to rehearse the sermon 
of John the Baptist for our sakes this morning. We need this man's message. Firstly, John the Baptist spoke plainly about sin. He taught the absolute necessity of repentance and the fruit thereof. This is so essential. One of the statements that John the Baptist was known to make is, bear fruit worthy of your repentance. In other words, if we have a definition of repentance that simply means regret, then we've missed what biblical repentance is. Tears, mournful expressions, apologies, and regret are not repentance. Not until there's fruit to show forth for the alleged, I'm sorry. This is John the Baptist's message. Don't front up to me with some overt religious facade and say, I'm deeply regretful for my sins. John the Baptist says, until you demonstrate a change of life, your repentance is of no value. The next aspect of John the Baptist's message is to speak plainly about the Lord Jesus Christ. He taught the people that one mightier than himself was coming among them. This is what all good biblical gospel preaching does. It points to Jesus Christ. It doesn't make the preacher or the listener the hero of the sermon. It always enthrones Christ. This is John the Baptist's example. The third thing J.C. Ryle offers, John the Baptist spoke plainly about the Holy Spirit. He preached that there was such a thing as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist says, one mightier than I is coming, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John the Baptist informed his hearers to await and be ready. John the Baptist taught that it was the special office of the Lord Jesus to give this spirit baptism to men. What that means is, and we must understand this, Jesus is not just a modifier of behavior. The baptism of Jesus entirely changes the person inside and out. If you are born again, you are entirely new. John the Baptist is telling us that this Jesus will come with a baptism that will change everything about you. John the Baptist, number four, spoke plainly about the awful danger of being unrepentant and unbelieving. He told his hearers that there was wrath to come. He preached on the unquenchable fire in which the chaff will one day suffer the burning of. John the Baptist didn't Mince words, he didn't back down, he didn't, try and, he didn't try and cover up the truth. If you are outside of Jesus, then what you stand to inherit from God is eternal, conscious torment of hell. John the Baptist knew that this is what the message of love sounds like. Love sounds like truth spoken in a manner that is clear. There's an unquenchable fire to come. Maybe there's someone here this morning, you're attending church, maybe someone watching on the live stream or the video. For whatever reason, your curiosity was piqued to come and have a look, to come and check it out, to come and have a listen. Maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe you've been coming to church for years. Church is, church is just the done thing for you. This is just this is what you do. 
And yet you are outside of Christ. You are not born again, born from above. You shall, in Jesus' words in John 3, if you are not born again, you will never see or enter the kingdom of God. But you shall be cast out. Cast out into a lake of burning fire where the smoke of your rising shall go up forever and ever and ever. John the Baptist did not shy away or back down from proclaiming this ugly yet altogether truth. Fifthly, and our last thing as we look to close our message this morning, John the Baptist spoke plainly about the safety of the true believers. He taught that all who are in Christ, all who belong to Jesus, are the wheat. And they're gathered together into Jesus' barn. And on the day of his appearing, are secure and safe from all punishment and judgment that might come upon us that we rightly deserve because of our sin. We are all sinners. There is no one here in this room that deserves hell more than any other one of us. We all stand guilty before God. But what Christ does is he comes and he issues forth a salvation, mercy, grace, forgiveness of sins by his death on the cross, his triumphant resurrection. He saves those who come to him by faith and receive him. The chaff are burned and swept away. John the Baptist's most harrowing remark will close on this thought. His most harrowing remark Especially to the religious elite of the day. You remember Pharisees and Sadducees came out. Some people argue that when they came out to John the Baptist, they were coming to, to test him, to quiz him, to, to get a sense of what he was all about and maybe try and trap him. And maybe that's true, although I'm not as convinced of that. Because it says in verse 7 of Matthew 3, if you've got a Bible, you're welcome to read along with me. It says, but when he saw John the Baptist, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism... Many Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to his baptism. He said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Friend, listen to me. Being religious doesn't save. Knowing the Bible cover to cover doesn't save. Reciting prayers doesn't save. Institutional religion does not save. If there was anyone that was going to be saved through any of that, it was going to be these Pharisees and these Sadducees. And John says, you are nothing but a pit of snakes. Who warned you? John, John wants to know. Isn't this curious? Could you imagine standing there among the tens of thousands of people? And John starts looking around. Who invited these guys? Which one of you got the word out to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And yet John the Baptist issues his most compelling and most damning statement. Even now, verse 10, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even now. Maybe you could bow your head and close your eyes here in this place as we close our thought here in Matthew chapter 3. I want to offer a prayer for us, but I want to continue and maintain this statement here this morning. Here you are in church. Here I am in church. Maybe you've been planning all week to get along to church, or maybe you sort of woke up and just, just came along. Who knows? But here is the warning. Wrath is coming. I would be an unfaithful, 
illegitimate and false Bible teacher if I did not, with emphasis, enforce this point. Those who are outside of Christ, the axe is already laid to the root of the tree of your life. And with every swing of the axe, is bringing that tree down so that you, if you're outside of Jesus, can be thrown onto the pile to be burned. And yet here today, in the words of John the Baptist, in the words of the Spirit-inspired text of Scripture, I am pleading with you, come to Jesus Christ. I am pleading with you, come to Christ. Be found in Him. Be stored in His barn. Be preserved by Him, protected and saved by His sin-free life, His atoning death, and His bodily resurrection. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Reject the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be condemned and burned as chaff. We're going to pray a prayer this morning. And my prayer is that all of us would know with certainty, have a confidence that we are in Jesus. That we have received Christ by faith. Not by works done in righteousness, but by faith. That we've believed on His name. We've received His good news. We're going to pray that that would be true of us all. And that God would bless this ministry to our hearts as we look and learn from the incandescent man. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Spirit here today. We thank You, Father, for Your Word. Clarifying, enlightening, encouraging, and challenging. I pray for all of us, myself included, Father, this morning, that your Spirit would move upon us right now. And if we are in Christ, if we by faith have received this wonderful good news, may the Spirit reassure us again and again and again. The Spirit of God testifies with us that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and co-heirs with Christ. But Father, if there are any here this morning who don't know Jesus in a saving way, who haven't received Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation of their soul. I ask you, Lord God, in Christ's name, may the Spirit come to them, convict them, compel them, encourage them, irresistibly draw them to this grace of salvation. I ask you, Lord God, to save precious souls here this morning. May there be none here this morning who are calculated as chaff on the day of judgment to be burned. But may we all heed this warning to flee from the wrath that is to come. Father, you sent forth your Son, born of the virgin woman, born under the law, that you might redeem all of us who are dead in accordance to the law. But now we may be alive in Christ. We ask your blessing upon this exposition this morning. May it encourage us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.